Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. We're so connected. We can use our credit cards. We can use payment apps, Zelle, Venmo, PayPal, all of these other options that we have to make payments that are digital, that once you're authenticated, uh, if someone has access to that account and that device, they can freely use it. With all the apps that Eva Velasquez of the Identity Theft Resource Center just mentioned, it kind of goes without saying that our information, a lot of it anyway, is already out there. You go to the grocery store and pay with anything but cash, they know what you bought, and in a few days you'll probably get coupons for those items in the mail. Google up any product or service, and you're going to be inundated by ads from everyone selling that product or service. And so the question is, how do we protect ourselves when all these third parties have all of this personal information about us? And is it too late to protect it? I'm Mike Rogers, and this is Something Offbeat. Back in September, a man from Northern California was charged with stealing money by writing checks to himself from his roommate's bank account. Now, the only problem? His roommate was dead. This man had been living with the dead body for four years. Darren Pirtle now faces charges of identity theft and forgery. His roommate, Kevin Olson, hadn't been seen alive since 2018, according to the local district attorney's office, and wasn't discovered until a missing persons investigation was started in August. It's a gruesome example of an economic crime that's actually kind of prevalent. It's horrifying. I'm hoping that this is an extreme example. Very extreme example. However, the the use of the deceased's identities and identity credentials and people, families, you know, committing this type of fraud against family members and people within their network, it's not uncommon. Another unusual thing about this was the fact that it involved checks, because who writes checks anymore, right? But... <laughs> It speaks to the fact that well, these days, a lot of this information that you're talking about is it's electronically generated. Every mm -hmm. time we swipe our debit card at the grocery store or pay a bill online, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, look, these analog crimes, such as the one you're talking about, where this person was actually physically writing and passing checks, that, I mean, that still happens but far less frequently than the, the digital identity crimes that we're seeing. In this case, the, this, the deceased person already had a checking account that was set up and established and very likely already had a box of checks just sitting there waiting to be used. That makes it a little bit easier for this the other individual to use them. Would have been interesting to see if this person could have um, successfully opened a new account using his roommate's credentials, but he was taking over an existing account. And those are two different types of activities that have different processes that a thief has to go through in order to perpetrate them. An acquaintance or a family member, somebody close to the victim mm -hmm. committing the crime. Is that more common than we think? 
It absolutely is more common than we think. If you think about identity crimes being crimes of opportunity in a lot of cases, this is where people who are close to you will have access to these identity credentials and your foundational identity documents. I mean, think about it. Parents have access and, and are supposed to be good stewards of their children's social security card and number, birth certificate, all those other identifiers. And sometimes if maybe you have extended family or you have a lot of people in and out of the home, these pieces of data and information about us are, are readily available unless we take the time as the owners of those credentials to secure them properly, knowing that those are just as valuable as your any cash that you have laying around the house or you know grandma's pearls. Your data and your identity documents and credentials are just as valuable, if not more valuable. Does a lot of identity theft fall into the category of a crime of opportunity? You know, we don't have good numbers because especially with things like familial identity theft where the perpetrator is known because it won't always be reported. The family may want to handle this as a family matter, but I can certainly say anecdotally from a lot of the victims that we speak to, they know who the perpetrator is. Unfortunately, because this crime is so lucrative, there are certainly many, many, many sophisticated fraud rings that are perpetrating identity crimes. And they don't know, they don't know or care who you are. They just want your identity credentials. And that's that's the case with things like the huge explosion of unemployment identity theft that we've seen over the last two years. That's very likely not known perpetrators. But there's this other subset, again, underreported because of the emotional impacts of it. You know, it's very hard. A parent calls and says, I don't want to see my son get in trouble. A child calls and goes, you know, I don't want to see my mom or my dad get in trouble for this. I don't know why they did it to me, but I, I don't want them to be arrested and go to jail. So it's definitely underreported. Is it too late for most people? I mean, after 20, 25 years of being online, that information is out there, right? For most people, it's like putting the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> Look, I agree with you that there's there is some of that. We have to acknowledge that for the vast majority of us, we're we're closing the the barn door after the horse is gone. And I understand that. But it doesn't mean we should be complacent because for those of us whose data has been compromised, which is going to be the vast majority of adults in this country, There are still things that we can and should do because not every identity thief has every piece of your data. So let's, you know, let's keep it that way. And then we also have to consider the future generation. The, the small children, the, those who have not been born yet, um, let's think about them and how the, the policies and the procedures and the, the standards that we have for managing data, how that needs to be changed and how behaviors can be changed so that we can bring up the next generation and they're not fighting this fight. You could pick one piece of personal information that we should be most vigilant about protecting. What would it be? I think this is going to surprise you because I'm not going to say your social security number and I'm not going to say your your financial account numbers your username and passwords on your online accounts. If you're only going to do one thing, and believe me, there's many more that you can and should be doing, but if you're only going to do one thing, please practice better management of all of your online accounts 
Financial, of course, but all of the other ones. Use a unique password, 12 characters or longer, and don't reuse the same easy-to-guess password over all of your accounts. That is going to help to reduce your risk significantly. So one, two, three, four, five, six is not a good password? Nope. And not your dog's name. <laughs> and not, you know, the four, the, the, not password thinking that you're being really, really clever by making the S's dollar signs. No. <laughs> so you do that. And, and then what should you keep an eye out for? Uh, protecting our bank accounts. Is that near the top of the list? I would think so. Any financial account is going to be near the top of the list. So your ba- your checking account, your savings account, your your credit cards, your 401, those types of accounts. And, and we always advise people to go to their financial institutions, go to your bank, go to your credit card issuers, ask what additional fraud protections they have in place that you can take advantage of and set up alerts on those accounts so that you are receiving information every time that account is either accessed or used. And then, of course, setting up multi-factor authentication or MFA. You can enable that on many of your online accounts, your financial accounts, and you should. Because then, even if somehow your login and password are compromised, someone still cannot access that account without that OTP, that one-time password code. The big caveat there is, Don't ever share that code with anyone. There's a ton of social engineering going on right now where the the threat actors are convincing people that they should share that code. And the reason sounds like really, really legitimate. And so people are going, oh, okay, this is, I need to provide this code to you. No, when you receive that code, it is for you and you only, so don't share it with anyone, regardless of how legitimate the reason sounds. CNET Cian Shore spoke with Odyssey's KCBS in San Francisco about how sophisticated some of these phishing attempts have become. A lot of the hacking that happens these days is about going after the weakest link among us, and that is you and me, right? The computer programs are actually pretty good at stopping hackers these days, but you and I are terrible at it. And part of it is we have bad passwords that we use all the time. I write, I, I write and talk about how we all need to use password managers and different passwords at every website. But also one of the other things that's happened is that there's been a real increase in these phishing attacks, right? These are emails that are designed to look like they're legitimate, but are in fact used to attack you. And, uh, you know, just like you're going after a fish, right? (laughs) And the unfortunate thing is that they've gotten so good that sometimes uh, you have situations where, for example, the man who was in charge of Hillary Clinton's campaign back in 2016 got a phishing email, looked like a legitimate email from Google. He logged in, he gave it his password. It turned out it was a hacker. Sure says even when he knows the person reaching out and recognizes the email address, there are still instances when he just doesn't feel comfortable responding digitally. Even when I get an email from one of my colleagues that asks me for a very basic thing that seems a little sensitive to me, I call. I don't ever put that in email because this type of stuff can happen and it's real and it happens every day. I know. I think a lot of us are getting very skeptical. Your mom could email you and you're like, "Mm, maybe, but maybe not. (laughs) You know what? I'll let you decide whether to respond to the last chain email your mom forwarded you. But a lot of us really have become complacent when it comes to protecting our information online. It won't happen to me, right? Or I'm too young and too tech-savvy to fall for that. 
But Velasca says older people aren't the only ones susceptible to having their information compromised. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a myth. I think that's a, a fallacy in our thinking. It is not about your age. It is about how you engage in the outside world. So when we look at scams and uh, identity crimes, it's it's pretty evenly with some minor fluctuations, but it's evenly across the different age groups. Now, a lot of seniors have more wealth. They've had a lifetime to build it. So they may lose more money in scams. They tend to lose larger dollar amounts in scams, but that's simply because they have access to more dollars and they will report it more frequently when you lose larger amounts. But how you engage with the online world, what you're how savvy you are, if you can make effective use of different technologies, that is more of the determining factor than just age alone. And everyone is vulnerable. And to that point, I was surprised to find out that kids are sometimes victimized by this as well. How does that work? Well, think about those identity credentials. Kids have a lot of them. They will definitely have a social security number, which is the one of the key ones that is used in all, you know, all of our financial services. Now they may not have a driver's license and, and things of that nature, but that social security number can be extremely valuable. And sometimes it's family members and they see it as a means to an end. In, in different communities see sharing credentials sort of differently. Again, they see it as, well, I have to meet this need, so let me get this need met. And they don't realize that one, it's a crime, and two, it really messes up the future for the person who's the actual true holder of that credential. So yes, kids can be victims. We deal with it um, all the time in the center particularly with foster youth who have their credentials passed around from different agencies and departments and you know foster parents there's just so many people that have access to that information if someone has a lot of passwords and i think most i do where's the best place to keep them do you put them on a thumb drive no do you keep them in the documents on your computer? No. Do you put them? No, no, no. Okay. I think there are a couple of options. Um, first of all, there are password managers. Uh, they're inexpensive. And if they are uh, intuitive, if they're easy for you to use, we do encourage people to do their homework and, and look into using a password manager. There are a number of good ones. I don't, we don't recommend any in particular because that's not um, who the ITRC is. It's not who we are, or what we do. Um, and then the other thing, particularly for my seniors, they they have told me, I can't use a password manager. It just doesn't make sense to me. I need to, but I need to manage these somehow. So I will give you permission. You can write your passwords down if you need to, but there's a right way to do that. And there's a wrong way to do that. If you're going to write them down, you need to go old school. You need to put them in a notebook, on a piece of paper, on a notepad, and you need to keep that in a secure location in your home. Don't take it with you anywhere. Don't leave it sitting around. Keep it in a locked filing cabinet, a drawer in your in your office, somewhere that it's not going to be easily accessible to someone coming into the home. Does that create a risk? Yes. Someone could break into your house, steal that physical piece of paper, take all your passwords. That could happen. But that is far less, your, your risk is far less of that happening than 
if you use the same easy password over all of your accounts and it gets compromised, that you have a far greater risk of that happening. Velasquez advises against one of the most common solutions. And I'll admit, I'm guilty of it. And again, when I say write it down, don't use it on a digital platform. Don't put it in the notes section on your phone or in a Word document on your computer. You're now digitizing that. And if that device gets compromised, then you've given the keys to the kingdom with all your passwords. I've got mine hidden. They're on the computer, but they're hidden. I've got, it says like, thing on there. Don't I mean, anyone. yeah, don't, shh, don't tell anyone. I mean, I do know people that are doing that. I recommend against it. Um, I, I think you're better off taking that document and going old school and putting it on a piece of paper that makes it challenging if you're on the go and need to access those things. And so in that case, if you travel a lot or you're always moving around, then I would say invest in a, in a password manager to meet your needs. But if your device gets compromised, these bad actors, they're a crafty lot. They know that we name things in our file folders like mom's recipes. They know that we don't label it passwords, or at least a lot of us don't. Some people do. But a lot of us are going to give it a tricky name because we think we're, you know, we're going to fool them. We're not. <laughs> I'm going to guess your password now. You're in San Diego, so it's Padres123. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Or the if you, if you know that I'm a dog lover, you know, the name of my dog. Perfect. It's Luna123. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let me write that down. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Keys to the kingdom. I'm Mike Rogers, and thanks for listening to Something Off Beats. This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake with audio editing and original music by Myron Kaplan, editorial support from Cooper Mall. Now, to keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, please send it to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey, that's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 